Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. I am James Finch and this is The Finch Show. Before we get into today's episode, I gotta talk about our sponsor, Black Star Woodcrafts. Black Star Woodcrafts is an absolutely amazing business. Um, my friend Scott, he runs this shop out of his home up in Michigan and some of the stuff he makes is absolutely incredible. Anything you can think of. I mean, he makes clocks, he makes cutting boards, he makes bath caddies, pens, uh, crochet hooks. Uh, some really, really cool. He got this one thing that he made that I'm going to have to get on him. Because if I ever build a man cave, I'm going to have one of these. It's basically kind of like a, a polished flat piece of wood that you hang that's got a bottle opener on it and a nice little bucket underneath. It's just kind of a neat little accent piece. But everything he does, he does to order. He loves talking to his customers and collaborating and coming up with ideas and giving you exactly what you want in terms of design, color, size. If you want something engraved, if you you know, want anything inscribed on it, he can do all of that. You can check him out on Facebook and Instagram. You can message him directly through there. He'll get back to you and we'll be able to figure out exactly what it is you want and when he can get that to you. And right now, because he's a sponsor of this podcast and you are listening to this podcast, you will get 15% off your order. So just look him up, talk to him, tell him you got there through the Finch Show and he will help you out. Today's podcast, I have Dr. Taylor Atkins from Northern Illinois University. I had him as a professor when I was at NIU in college um, for Imperial Japanese History, which is part of one of his areas. And I really enjoyed it. It was one of the classes that I had the most fun in. It was a very challenging course, but it was extremely informative. And that period of Imperial Japanese History is just a fascinating period. You're talking like just from the 1860s to the end of World War II. Um, and recently it was a subject that in my own mind I'd kind of gotten back into. And so I reached out to him to see if he'd be willing to come on the podcast and talk about that about that kind of stuff. And he was more than happy to. So I was really, really happy he came on. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Without further ado, here is Dr. Adkins. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with Dr. Adkins, and um, we were talking just now, just before the podcast, that you were my professor for Imperial Japanese history class at NIU um, back in 2006, which feels like a lifetime ago now, but here we are anyway. But that um, Imperial Japanese history is such a unique time in history where you rarely see this sort of like in, if I'm describing it correctly, in a way it was sort of like a revolution or a coup, but sort of from the upper class. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, the, the like in Russia or anything like that, where it was the, um, the working class overthrowing the power structure. It was more of a, like the slightly below, you know, the, the Tokugawa shogunate, which was ruling at the time, sort of overthrowing what was there and reinstalling the emperor, and you don't really see things like that happen throughout world history. No, you're talking about the Meiji Restoration. Yeah, um, historians have been sort of grappling with what that, well, how to, what kind of box to put that in, you know, uh, in terms of our categories. 
um, for a long time because it's right. You're right. There's there's a popular element to it that I'll I'll talk about in a minute, but it's not that element is not necessarily devoted to dynastic overthrow and the establishment of a new government. Um, but Andrew Gordon has sort of settled on this phrase revolution from above. And uh, what that means is, you know, during the Tokugawa period, the, the warrior caste, hereditary warriors were the dominant group. But within that caste, obviously, there were people of, you know, very different ranks, uh, very different occupations, very different lifestyles and income. And um, after Japan opened trade and diplomacy with uh, the United States and other European countries in um, 1854, the uh, sort of middle ranking samurai uh, group became very disenchanted with the Tokugawa government because uh, they believed that and some of them were, you know, very radical that we should, they shouldn't have opened to the West and um, that the, and that the government had failed its very basic responsibility, which is to protect Japan from external threat. So um, they also had other grievances. They felt like um, other, and you know, you could, you could put it in a kind of a petty way if you wanted to. I'm not inclined to look at it that way. I trust their sincerity to some degree. But they felt like they had been overlooked, that they were more capable than some of the people that got promotions. Um, um, and then some of them were genuinely uh, influenced by this inundation of, of information about uh, the West. Um, they, they studied the history of the West, they, uh, the ideas. And so this group sort of coalesced around um, the emperor as opposed to the, the shogun. And um, they engineered a coup um, Many of these people were based in, a, in regions of Japan that were very far away from the shogunate's capital, Edo, which is now Tokyo. And uh, yeah, they engineered a coup. Um, there was a civil war, you know, just a few months long, about 5,000 people, I think, died in it, but they established a new government. And um, what they did after that would be by any stretch, you know, any definition revolutionary. They reconstructed every aspect of the government. They had to do a lot of compromising and co-opting in the, in the, in the process. Um, but they viewed their country as being completely very disunified. And so they observed what was going on in Germany, what was going on in Italy and what was going on in the United States with reconstruction. And both of those were sort of nation building. All of those were nation building. And so that's what they, they tried to do. Um, and, they, you know, it was very elitist. <laughs> you know, no question about that. But um, they were very capable people who uh, learned a lot um, and just to try tried to create this entirely new government. And the popular element that I was referring to was has been sort of summarized as Ajanaika, which literally means ain't it great, but other people translated it as what the hell. <laughs> and it was based on these legends that there were paper uh, prayers like you would do at, uh, or charms, amulets that were descending, falling from the sky. And people just felt like the entire world was coming to an end. It was very millenarian in that sense. 
and they would erupt into these spontaneous sort of demonstrations and they would dance and they would um, sometimes destroy property um, and they would go around crying, hey Janaika, hey Janaika. There's a movie called Hey Janaika that shows, and I, I show vivid footage from that so students get a chance to see what it looks like. And I wouldn't call that either pro or anti, you know, shogunate. It was, it was just sort of a, an energy that I think to some degree um, made it easier to get the populace ready for some kind of a change in the, in the government structure. Mm -hmm. Well, it had to be Japan had to, you know, almost kind of had like a, a brigadoon kind of situation going on there because throughout the period, throughout the Tokugawa shogunate period, they kept themselves pretty much isolated from the rest of the world. That had kind of been a government, sort of a mandate from the shogun. And if I understand correctly, it had a lot to do with they saw what was happening um, in China and other areas with Christian missionaries, missionaries in the West and sort of what they considered to be the corruption um, and colonization. And so their sort of decision to, you know, sort of block themselves off from the rest of the world and not really allow any contact. Um, and technologically speaking, during that period, they didn't really advance from what I understand. And then all of a sudden, one day, there's this steam-powered gunship, you know, basically sailing its way into Tokyo Bay. And to the people of Japan, it must have just felt like over, just like you were saying, like overnight, the world had changed. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it was very disturbing. Uh, of course, you know, the people that knew about it first were the ones in Edo and most most of the people throughout the country wouldn't have known about it at least immediately. Although it's really interesting there's a huge corpus of visual depictions of these what they call black ships and of the the foreigners who were aboard which included both which included um, uh, not just white American naval you know, semen, but also um, slaves, black slaves. But um, yes, uh, I mean, the, when we talk about Japan being isolated, I would, you know, kind of as a, and you seem to, you acknowledge this yourself in what you said, it's more of an isolation against Christianity in that sense. It's very targeted. And part of it is based on what they observe in other countries. And apparently a, a very uh, a casual remark that a Spanish Franciscan made to the warlord Toyotama Hideyoshi about the Spanish conquest of the Philippines. But not only that, uh, missionaries in Japan had actually made a sizable number of converts. There, there's estimated to have been about 300,000 Christians that converted in Japan. Now, some of those, wouldn't have a very complete understanding of doctrine, especially the Trinity. That's a very difficult concept, but also um, the, the meaning of the crucifixion. But, um, and, and, and in some cases you had a daimyo, a warlord, regional warlord who would, you know, uh, accept Christianity uh, sometimes sincerely and sometimes just to get a hold of some Western guns and trade. Uh, and say everyone in my domain is a Christian. <laughs> so that could have inflated the numbers. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Christianity was viewed as a threat, uh, doctrinal heresy. You know, the thing that they couldn't get their minds around um, was this the exclusivism, exclusivity of Christianity. 
because as you as you know japan had multiple it was very multi multiple religious uh practices lots of different sects of buddhism shinto and buddhism coexisting um all of the real religious violence that had occurred in japan was between buddhist sects not between shinto and buddhism because those were more or less as complementary so to be told by missionaries that all your religious practices are are um are wrong and ours is the only right one that was very offensive yeah <laughs> um so as a result of that christian missionaries uh were expelled and the only european country with whom japan maintained relations was the netherlands and the dutch were you know segregated on this small little island off the coast of nagasaki and they had their trade the D dutch east india company um ships would arrive i think every year or every two years from java which was a dutch colony and um and this was important it was pivotal because this was during the scientific revolution the enlightenment in europe um, they brought a lot of books with them it had a profound impact in particular on medical practice um, there were japanese who were trained specifically and hired by the government to learn dutch and they would translate books particularly in anatomy and medicine um, besides that they had um, trade and diplomatic relations with korea with the ainu people in the north part of japan with the ryukyu kingdom which was a, an independent kingdom that is now okinawa and um and then they they had sort of unofficial under the radar connections with china mm -hmm. but and, and but most Japanese, yes, would never have seen uh, a foreigner, let alone a Westerner, until the 1850s. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> now, the period that Japan goes through after this, during the Meiji Restoration, where they're kind of like doing everything in their power to play catch up with the rest of the world as fast as possible, was that sort of one of those... Um, like, hey, we're way behind the times and we need to catch up on all this stuff? How much of that was... Um, how much of that was a fear that if they didn't, you know, they would be in trouble in terms of dealing with the rest of the world in terms of being fear of colonization and being overpowered and it was all motivated by that. It was all motivated by that. Uh, the Japanese had signed what we call unequal treaties where all of the trade advantages and everything basically went to the other party. Um, Japan had to open treaty ports. They weren't able to set their own tariffs. Um, they lost, you know, they had to allow Christian missionary activity. They had to, um, you know, allow foreigners to permanently or at least long-term reside on their soil. Um, the foreigners were uh, exempt from Japanese law and only subject to uh, their home country's law. Um, so in a lot of ways the western countries had carte blanche and um japanese looked at what was going on in other parts of the world they knew about the opium wars in china and the entire project of building their state and emulating institutions and practices and ideas from the west was based on this fear that they would be colonized and um 
you know, in, in, under the unequal treaty regime, both China and Japan have been described as semi-colony. Uh, you know, they didn't entirely lose their sovereignty, but they lost particular aspects of sovereignty that we would consider to be basic. <laughs> and so that everything was geared toward the goal of revising these treaties so that they would be equal, so that Japan would be treated as an equal in the new international order and retain its sovereignty. Um, if, if you look at what was happening in Burma, in Indochina, um, and in Southeast Asia generally, uh, Malaya, Singapore, those areas were, they were, you know, the French, the British were fighting wars in those areas to, uh, to conquer and overthrow monarchies. Um, and then China was repeatedly getting pummeled. And so, you know, a, a lot of students, uh, what's hard for them to, to understand at least is, you know, why Japanese would be so, uh, would have so little faith in their own culture and would be so, would, would so readily abandon so many of their own cultural practices and ideas. But that's because the, the leadership and the people uh, had their eye on the ball of changing those treaties and re reasserting complete sovereignty. One of the motivations you'll probably remember for uh, Japan's expansion uh, in becoming, you know, an empire itself was their fear that the government in Korea, which was then known as Chosun, was so weak that it was destined itself to be conquered, most likely by China or Russia. And if you think about the geographic proximity, there's only, you know, 100 plus kilometers from the southernmost island, the Korean Peninsula is, Tsushima Straits, they call it. Um, that was, you know, that was very frightening to them. They had a Prussian military officer who at the Japanese military academy who showed, you know, showed them a map and said, Korea is like a dagger aimed at the heart of Japan. And not only that, but the only external uh, attacks on Japan that had ever occurred before uh, in 1274 and 1281 by the Mongol dynasty in China came from the Korean Peninsula. And so for Japanese, initially at least, the aim was to create, a, I wouldn't call it a puppet uh, state in uh, Korea, but at least a very pro-Japanese, uh, a friendly state with a stronger government in Korea that would, you know, operate in Japan's own best security interests. Mm -hmm. And they succeeded in getting a sizable number of people in the Korean court who wanted to do in Korea what Japanese were doing in the Meiji state, you know, total reform of the culture and the administration, um, as they called it, self-strengthening. Um, and at one point in 1884, those pro-Japanese elements in the Korean court engineered a coup that lasted for a couple of days at the end of uh, 1884, um, trying to install a more progressive government. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people, Koreans especially, believe that Japanese always wanted to rule Korea, but it was a more progressive kind of gradual change in perspective on how to deal with Korea that happened over several decades. Now, was that um, there, 
incident in Korea that ended not the way they wanted it to. Wasn't there sort of like a international outcry that Japan was sort of beginning to, I guess, misbehave? You know, sort of go outside their boundaries because, if I understand it correctly, there was sort of this idea that Japan, when they open back up and they see what's going on in the world, and they realize like what's happening is these world powers, they're industrialized, they have really strong militaries, and they sort of collect colonies. They sort of collect colonies and keep them in their keep them in their breadbasket. And Japan, in a way, sort of said, "Well, if we want to be a world power, that's what we needed to do." And as soon as they sort of stepped out and began to do that, the rest of the world was like, "Oh no, 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 not you! You're not allowed to do that. That's uh, what right. we do." Right. I, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking of. Um, so Japan fought two wars to have preeminence in Korea. The first against the Chinese in 1894-95, and then against the Russians in 1904-05. Um, and the Sino-Japanese War was mostly was a large, in a large degree, fought on the Korean Peninsula. And it began actually with an insurrection in Southwest Korea called the Donghak Rebellion. And when the Korean king called for troops from the Qing Dynasty in China to come in and help quell it, the Japanese said, "Uh-uh," and they sent their troops there. And then they got it on. Um, what you're talking about is the uh, session after that war was over. The uh, Chinese, well, the Japanese demanded territory from the Chinese. One of the things they got was Taiwan. And that was Japan's, well, it's, you know, many people say it's Japan's first colony, but some people would argue that Hokkaido and Okinawa were its first colonies. <laughs> but they also got this territory, a peninsula called the Laodong Peninsula in China, which actually juts out toward the Korean Peninsula. And the Russians had had their eye on that. They wanted to build a railroad, invest in a railroad in China for, on that territory. And so after Japan got that, I think what you're referring to is the triple intervention, whereby the Russians get the French and Germans to side with them and tell Japan, no, you can't do this. This will upset the balance of trade and, and uh, powers in China that all have, we all have economic interests there. And this will just throw that off. And Japan was in no position to resist that. And uh, so eventually, it, and it was unprecedented, really, for three uh, you know, other countries to, to gather, get, get together and um, say, you have to give up the spoils of war. And Japanese are thinking, our, our troops shed their blood on that territory. Uh -huh. They couldn't resist. Uh -huh. And so as a result of that, Japanese realized, no matter what we do, no matter how much we modernize, we are always going to be regarded as inferior and second class in the international realm. They thought it was racist. I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think there was more to it than racism. But, uh, and, and the, you know, the West at the time, they were really ambivalent about Japan. They were very impressed and uh, by what Japanese had accomplished in a few decades. They also, but they are also afraid of, of what that might be 
result in, in terms of the balance of powers in East Asia. So, um, so there, you know, there was a kind of ambivalence, an admiration, but also a fear. And this was an opportunity to sort of put their foot down and say, look, we're only going to allow you so much. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, after that, you know, ever since the Japanese had convened their first parliament in 1890 and every year they had to dissolve the parliament. And one of the things that they always got in, into it about was military appropriations. After 1895 and the triple intervention, they didn't have that fight anymore. <laughs> the <laughs> parliament just basically gave the military what it wanted. Mm -hmm. Because if this ever happened again, they wanted to um, be able to fight back. And I, I may have done this, you know, I've, I've been doing this for years. I may have done it in the class you took with me, but I've always emphasized the triple intervention as being a very pivotal moment that in, in Japanese history and in Japanese attitudes toward the rest of the world that I believe was very much in people's minds in the 1930s and 40s when Japan sort of went it alone, quit the League of Nations um, and, uh, and, you know, went rogue in the international order. This was a simmering resentment. Mm -hmm. Now that changed a little bit after they beat Russia. You know, that you have the, the, you had the, the British enter into an alliance, mutually beneficial defense alliance with Japan. Um, defeating a white, a white country was a big, big deal. And so they were treated with greater deference and respect. They were at, in Paris for the, for the Treaty of Paris ending World War I. They had participated a little bit against, in, against the Germans in China. So, um their status did improve but i don't think the the stain of the triple triple intervention ever left their minds mm -hmm. well and i can see that if you're if you're sort of looking at it from japan's perspective and sort of one day they get woken up and realize oh there's a worldwide game that's being played and you are either a winner or a loser and if yes. you want to be a winner, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And Japan does everything that's hard to do X, Y, and Z. And in typical Japanese fashion, do it to the best of their absolute ability. <laughs> and they begin to play the game, and they begin to play it well. And instantly they're told, oh, no, this is the game we play, not you. You have your place regardless of what, you, what it is you think you're doing. So to them, you can feel sort of like, oh, so the game is rigged. Not only is it a game we're trying to play catch up on, but we're not even on fair footing purely because you don't like the fact that we're Japanese. Yeah. And to Japanese pride, that's where you're talking about, from what I understand, extremely prideful people. Mm -hmm. That has got to be an absolute slap in the face. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, pride was definitely going around. I mean, that was a huge part of the imperial game at the time was having as much territory, having the biggest empire. Um, you know, I, I think about this, I hadn't thought about this before. Um, you, but if you look at it in a longer context, there were really only a few instances in which world powers really strongly objected to Japanese actions um, in other places or the seizure of a colony. There was some concern in Russia about Japan taking over, you know, northern territories, the Sakhalin Islands between 
Vladivostok, uh, you know, the extreme Western Siberia, Eastern Siberia in the Pacific and the Northern Island of Hokkaido. There was some minor concern when Japanese sent an expeditionary force against Taiwan Aborigines uh, in 1874. But there was no real resistance to the cession of Taiwan to Korea. The main times that the world objected to a seizure of territory by the Japanese were the Laodong Peninsula and then Manchuria in 1931. Most of the time, the rest of the world recognized that there's no real, they were on, they had no moral standing to object to Japan taking colonies. And if you consider it also from the fact that imperialism to a degree, at least rhetorically, was about establishing a degree of order by taking over less civilized areas, you know, um, and uh, controlling them. Some people regarded that, you know how people say building up arms, being, having strong military actually guarantees peace rather than creating war. It was, it was a similar mindset with regard to imperialism, mm -hmm. uh, I think. So and Japan had its way a lot, especially after the Russo-Japanese War, um, because other countries didn't care enough to intervene. And there's a famous sort of under the table agreement called the Taft-Katsura Agreement in 1905 after the Russo-Japanese War in which basically the Americans gave up any objection they had to Korea as long as the Japanese recognized American claims in the Philippines. As you know, you know the Philippines became an official colony of the US and, but the US spent years and years suppressing an indigenous independence movement. Um, and in 1905, you know, it had, the, some of the, the worst of it had died down, but it was still ongoing. And, and the United States was frightened enough of Japan to feel that they had to make some kind of concession so the Japanese would leave them alone in the Philippines. And that was acknowledging Japanese dominance in the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. It's, um, so this, I've always wondered about this, and this is going back a little bit. So during the period of the Tokugawa shogunate, and at, at the time, the emperor of Japan is still existing, <clears throat> excuse me, because they have, they have what, like a 2,500 year supposedly unbroken line of succession to the throne in Japan. But the emperor, the emperor's palace was in Kyoto, right? I got that correctly. Until 1860 eight or nine they moved the they moved the emperor to the shogun's old palace in in edo tokyo mm -hmm. yeah. now what's that what's that got to be like for meiji who's grown up his entire life in this palace in kyoto and one day somebody knocks the door and says hey man we need you <laughs> we need right. you to take control was there now was there I, I realize it's probably pretty nuanced and pretty granular at this point but was there a belief of we need to take the emperor and put him in power because he will be the one to guide us or was there more of an idea of using him as a figurehead or a pr person where was the level of hey let's put the emperor back in charge what was the mindset behind that well the answer to your question about you know either getting guidance from him or using him the answer to that is yes 
<laughs> um, you know, the, the emperor, I think, was 17. He was in his late teens or something when the restoration occurred. Um, he, so he was very malleable. And a, a lot of the, um, the, the, he would became a unifying factor. You know, people could rally around him. And that made the emperor more actually politically relevant than he had been in the centuries. He'd always been there, but people scattered throughout the country. You know, people in Kyoto had, and, and then Edo had most awareness of him and what he represented. But a lot of people just thought of him as being sort of a spirit who was, or, you know, a divine figure who was far away from them, had no relevance to them. Um, and knowing the sort of separation of powers or distinction between the emperor and the shogun, you know, you had to be a little more politically savvy than the average Japanese person was to even understand that. Um, but, you know, when the Meiji restorationists objected to the shogun, they decided that, you know, the only real leverage that they had in terms of traditional uh, tradition for challenging the shogun, a traditional basis was the emperor. And um, what they said they wanted to do was restore the emperor to political uh, uh, power in addition to, or to go along with his symbolic power. In the process, they did that, but they also significantly raised his symbolic power. Um, that, that was one of the big crucial elements of this nation building process I was talking about was to get people to, first of all, know who the emperor was. Number two, recognize his significance as the heir to the longest surviving monarchy in the history of the world. And it still is, um, you know, in terms of family dynasty, what's the oldest. Um, and they were very aware of this, uh, and, and tr developing that sense of reverence for his divinity as the descendant of the sun goddess among the populace. And of course, you know, they, they did this in a variety of ways. They built shrines dedicated to the emperor and his ancestors, uh, throughout the country. And most importantly, through the education system. They tried, you know, they worked on persuading people that the emperor was this living God on earth to whom all Japanese were, should be loyal. Now, even liberal pro-democracy activists in the 1870s and 1880s, this is really interesting, even they didn't challenge the idea of the emperor dynasty. They didn't, they, they nobody, well, I wouldn't say nobody, but relatively few people who agitated for a more functioning democratic system than the oligarchy that was existing. Uh, very few of them objected to the emperor per se. As a matter of fact, what they argued was that this oligarchy of you know former restorationists who actually ran the government were standing between the emperor and the people. And that what the emperor really wanted was connection to his people and, and to be responsive to them, be more democratic. 
So that one of the things they agitated for was a constitution. They got a constitution in 1889, but the constitution um, put sovereignty in the emperor, not in the people. And there's a really interesting, um, there was a guy, named, a British guy in, who lived in Japan for a long time named Basil Hall Chamberlain, who in the early 1900s said, these oligarchs, these government leaders are fabricating from whole cloth this reverence for the emperor and that imperial, the aura about, of you know, divinity and power supremacy around him. He said, they're inventing this, but they come to believe in it themselves. You know, do, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They come to believe their own, <coughs> the, their own doctrine as they're creating it. Mm -hmm. Wow. That said, I just want to add one more thing, though, about this. The, the emperor um, became more proactive in the government. Um, in, in many ways. Some of it was just sort of empty symbolism, maybe rubber stamping initiatives or things like that. But he did become very well educated. Um, he was photographed wearing Prussian military wear. You've probably seen those, those pictures. Um, and he was considered to be very much on board with the overall project of, you know, this inheritance slogans they had, uh, Bunmei Kaika, Civilization and Enlightenment, Fukoku Kyohei, which means uh, rich country, strong military. Um, and, and so, you know, he was a supporter of these kinds of things. Um, so that's why I say, you know, he was both a source of guidance, but also used um, for the purpose of the government. Was it sort of like, um, I guess, initially the idea behind it sort of being, like I'd said before, like a PR thing where it's sort of like the world is changing. We have to go, go, do th go through a lot of changes here, a lot of modernization. Of course, they wouldn't have looked at it that way. Um, and we're getting rid of all this mumbo jumbo and the emperor himself is here now to put his hand on it and oversee us kind of like as a, as a measure to give it legitimacy sort of thing. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly the way I put it. It legitimized the whole enterprise. What's funny is that in the, in, in doing that, they didn't rely so much on Japanese imperial traditions so much as the monarchical traditions of Europe. They wanted to make the, you know, while they're talking about Japanese tradition of imperial stewardship and sovereignty, they're also they were also very much looking at practices say in the Austro-Hungarian Empire or Germany, uh, lesser degree to Britain, you know, where the the royalty was kind of more defanged, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they that was what they were looking to do was to create uh, a popular image of a of a popular leader who had a connection to um, to the people. And, um, and the Tsar of Russia would be another example, um, and was leading the country in a, in a very specific trajectory. Mm -hmm. So we get ahead on a lot of this stuff. And um, uh, something I definitely wanted to cover is in 1937, the, uh, the, the Second Sino-Japanese War begins, where Japan invades China. And it was in your class, one of the required texts that we had to read was The Rape of Nanking by Iris Chang, um, which was one of those, as a college student, it was one of those extremely eye-opening books where you were just like, 
you know, it would sort of like, it, in a way, it was kind of like finding out one day that the Holocaust happened and you'd never heard about it, you know, because it, it felt like it was so, but, and for are those who sure don't know. I, are you sure I signed that book? You know, because um, I, I have a lot of problems with that book. I, I, oh, really? Yeah, I, I'm sure that I signed something else, but in any, but in any case, that was, that was indeed the impact of Chang's book. Mm -hmm. What you're describing, waking up one day, not knowing the Holocaust happened and being, you know, sort of a grown ass person who even knows something about history. And then all of a sudden there's this book, a bestseller that says this thing happened. So that, that was the impact. You know, now that I think about it, just, I think the semester before I did your class, I had a humanities class that was basically a, a World War II humanities class. And now oh, that I think, I think that book was assigned in that one. And I remember reading it. And then, of course, having read that, having that fresh in my mind, and then coming into your class on top of it, it was kind of like... I bet video mm -hmm. in the name of the emperor. Because I usually assign, I, we usually watch that in class. Mm -hmm. yeah, what was the, the um, I guess I don't want to, I've definitely got a question about that that I want to mm -hmm. ask. But for the listeners out there who don't, you know, have a lot of history behind this. So in 1937, the Japanese invade China. And Nanking, which at the time was Nanjing, was um, the capital of China. And as Japanese troops sort of roll in and occupy the place, the level of war atrocities just kind of skyrockets, like mayhem just, all societal structure comes completely unglued. And for days and weeks on end, you just have Japanese troops just having their way with any and every civilian they come across in that city. And it's, that's why it has so many different names, the rape of Nanking, the Nanking incident, the Nanking atrocity. Massacre. Um, it, Nanking. And to this day, especially when it comes to the Japanese, it's semi-controversial, isn't it? In terms of what exactly happened there and yeah. the way it's viewed. Absolutely. It is. Um, you know, it's, 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 un it's, it is unfortunate that Chang's book, which is, you know, it played an important role and I, I don't want to diminish that, but it has serious problems, but it's kind of un unfortunate that it had to have the impact that it did, that so many people outside of Japan and China apparently didn't know about it because at the time it was very well covered. It was broadly known in the world. People knew what was going on while it was happening. Three weeks of, as you said, pretty unrestrained uh, killing, torture, sexual violence. Um, what's controversial, there are a couple of things in Japan, and it depends on who you talk to. There are plenty of Japanese who acknowledge it happened and acknowledge it was awful. And the people who have really gone out of their way to interview veterans who participated or who witnessed are Japanese. A lot of them are school teachers. They, they've sought these people out. They've asked them really, really hard questions. In the video that you probably saw, there are at least three or four veterans who just very plainly say, this is what we did, you know? Um, and really don't make any excuses. If anything, you know, there's a difference between an excuse and an explanation. Yeah. 
what they do and they're completely um you know there's there's nothing wrong with this they're completely right they talk about the the training that they went through and how they were brutalized by their officers and that in many cases they were ordered by their officers to commit these atrocities the officers always maintained it was troops on the loose and that sort of thing i think it's probably a combination of both but in any case in japanese in japan there's a lot of people who acknowledge it happened want to keep the memory alive want to interview find out what really happened um there are also a larger number than there should be of japanese who say it never happened and in the middle there's japanese who say it happened but that the numbers are exaggerated they say the the people killed was around 100,000 as if that's not that big a deal the chinese claim it's 300,000 as if that makes it worse than if it was a hundred thousand you know <laughs> right uh, and the thing about the chinese government i dismiss categorically damn near every claim that they make because they are not honest about history either mm -hmm. and as long as they feel they can get some kind of diplomatic leverage or advantage by continually bringing these things up uh in their in discourse with japan continually saying apologize and then when japanese apologize they say well it wasn't sincere or you know all it takes is one uh regressive or nationalistic politician in japan to say well this didn't happen or that many people didn't die all it takes is one person it doesn't necessarily represent the government's official position let alone the the people all it takes is one and then chinese and to some degree koreans will jump all over that and say, well, the Japanese are hiding their war crimes. They're not apologetic. See, the Chinese government is not a democracy. Mm -hmm. They can't handle the idea that uh, there are individual citizens in Japan who don't agree with the facts or revise that. They can't, they can't get with that. And so they, when any one person pops off like that, and believe me, I'm not supporting those people, but they, they take that as it speaks for the entire Japanese nation. Mm -hmm. And that's because the, you know, the Chinese just can't handle the idea that people disagree about history in a democracy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I could see that. Um, so views about Nanjing in Japan vary a lot. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Japanese, a lot of the real grunt work to find out about the Nanjing massacre to find out about comfort women, um, to find out about the biological research facility, uh, unit 731, um, to find mass graves of Korean laborers who were, um, you know, forced to work for Japanese companies or mining or things like that in Japan. The grunt work for that has been done by Japanese. Other people have gotten involved. A lot of times the Japanese will work with Koreans or, you know, other foreigners to do this legwork. And I, I think, and, and they get death threats for that. Mm -hmm. They, you know, it's like when people criticize Trump here, they get death threats. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't endorse this idea that Japan doesn't acknowledge 
their wrongdoing and their atrocities during the war. That's complete baloney. You do have high-profile people like Abe, like um, the, the circles that he runs in, who, who take that position. Um, but you got to understand how important grassroots pacifism is as a political force and um, part of the national identity of Japanese now. And they look at these atrocities through the prism of being the only uh, country to ever be attacked with atomic weapons, the renunciation of war, and you know coming to terms with what Japanese did during the war. And they have done the really hard work. I think it's completely disingenuous for Chinese to scold Japanese about being honest about history. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. One of the, and there's many interesting aspects about what happened in Nanking, and I urge anyone to, you know, get out there and research and read more on it. But the story of John Robbie in there in, in town, who, um, as a background for people, he was a German businessman. He was a member of the Nazi party who helped establish the, uh, was it called the International Safe Zone, was it called? Yeah, something like that, right. And spent a great deal of time during the rape of Nanking sort of protecting people. He had taken his swastika flag and put it on the roof of his house so that Japanese aircraft flying overhead could see it because of course there was that fear that because the Japanese government and Nazi Germany were allied with each other, that this is one area, one guy you don't want to mess with. He probably wore his swastika on his armband while he was helping get Chinese civilians to safety and for, you know, into his safe zone to protect them. It, it kind of messes a little bit with the dichotomy in your head of, or I should say the, the labels we have in our head for what we think of, of, of Nazis. Um, not saying for a second, and I don't know, because I haven't done a lot of background on it, you know, you don't know if somewhere along there, John Robbie, being a member of the Nazi party did believe himself to be genetically superior, but that didn't mean it was okay to just go genocide on people. I think that could be kind of two, two, there's two different distinctions there with that. Yeah, there are. And there were a lot of abolitionists in the U S who thought slavery was abominable, but still believed that they, that white people were superior to black people and had a very paternalistic attitude toward them. Mm -hmm. Um, being abolitionist didn't mean you weren't racist. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's interesting, especially living here in, in Illinois, as much as I, and I think a lot of times we have a, we have a hard time labeling historical figures as either A plus good or F minus bad. And there's not a lot of in between. <laughs> we don't allow for that layering or, or sort of nuance to happen. But you know, Abraham Lincoln, the, you know, the great liberator, the emancipist, you know, he felt that way too. You know, he, you know, he had given several speeches even before he was president when he was here in Illinois, especially in Southern Illinois, because it was political and you were appealing to voters um, that were extremely racist and it was basically disparaging the black race. But at the end of the day, he still felt like that doesn't mean they should be slaves though, you know? Um, so you, you see a lot of that. Uh, the interesting thing, and I always wondered, I couldn't get down to the, the story as to why this happened. I'm sure, no doubt, it was politically motivated, but uh, John Robbie, after leaving China, went to Germany and began speaking out about what had happened and what was happening still at the time in China. And he 
tried to use his connections to write a letter to Hitler to let him know what was going on. And his letter was intercepted and he was arrested by the Gestapo and was eventually released, but under strict orders that he wasn't allowed to give any more speeches or talks on the subject. Like it was sort of one of those, I almost got the feeling it was kind of one of those, you know, you, while you're saying may be true, there's also a possibility to hear that you could cause some international relations issues. So you got to kind of keep your mouth shut. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so I don't want to, one of the questions that I have, and this is again, sort of segueing into another thing, sort of trying to wrap your mind around the Japanese mindset, sort of like the, this path that begins during the Meiji Restoration and then moving forward as we get into World War II is this sort of what we would consider to be like an almost insane, um, intense sort of nationalism. I mean, when you had several of these instances where, you know, at, at the end of World War II and kind of a last ditch effort to stop the American advance, they were just dropping whole units off on islands with ammunition and weapons and basically telling them, fight to the last man, you're not going to be reinforced, you're not going to be evacuated. This is where you are. This is your job is to make a stand. And we get to the point where in the 1970s, there are still soldiers on these islands still waging guerrilla warfare not believing what anybody's telling them that the war is over because their notion that Japan would never surrender. You know, we would fight, we would die to the absolute last man. So for you to say that J Japan surrendered or the emperor surrendered has to be an imperial imperialist lie. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would respectfully disagree with the whole concept of the Japanese mindset. You know, okay. you know, I, I don't endorse those. That's, that's, you know, sort of, cultural reductionism, you know, that uh, all the people who are in a particular culture, you know, subscribe to all aspects of it. Uh, That's true. But, but that said, that's not the same thing as, you know, I don't mean to deny that there wasn't a particular kind of military mindset that, um, you know, behind the efforts to, to fight, uh, you know, and, and to motivate people. Although I like to say that if Japanese believed that everyone, all ja uh, all other Japanese believed like they did, there wouldn't be any need for propaganda, right? <laughs> the propaganda is to, is to remind people or to articulate to people, these are our goals. This is how we achieve our goals, right? And um, if they had faith that all Japanese agreed with that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't put so much effort into trying to persuade them. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about uh, in terms of, you know, sort of a fanatical idea of self-sacrifice, um, it's, it's really hard to, to say. There, there were people, grunt soldiers, who sincerely believed that doing this would give them and their families, more importantly, their families, some kind of tremendous um, honor, you know, uh, to die in the name of the emperor. And supposedly, you know, when you, when you got blown to hell, you would, you know, ideally you would have say, you know, long live the emperor or something like long live his majesty, the emperor. Um, but I, 
have to say, though, that one of the reasons Americans saw that is they were encountering people who had no other choices and were, and were desperate. That kind of, you know, throwing yourself in front of the enemy in overwhelming numbers, you know, to, to demoralize and, you know, if you're lucky, uh, actually run, run over them was the action of a military that didn't have the capacity any longer to fight the war in a, in a, in a better, more sophisticated and effective way. Um, the kamikaze, for instance, the uh, Japanese by 1942 Battle of Midway, Japanese had some a lot of very experienced fighter pilots, right, who had flown missions in uh, China, um, in Southeast Asia, and in the attack on Pearl Harbor, and you know some of them. There's a guy named Sakai who was a naval pilot who had a you know, tremendous record. He was like Red Baron, you know, material. The guy got shot in the in the head in his cockpit and flew all the way back to either to Japan or to his carrier and made it back and survived. And then, you know, shot down more enemy planes too. He was, he was something else. Wrote books about it afterwards into the seventies. Um, but in at the battle of Midway, a lot of those pilots got blown to hell. And so they didn't have the time or the equipment to train and get battle experience for more. That takes years, right? Uh, for more pilots to, to be as effective in aerial warfare as those, as that cohort was. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what they would do was, would be to build, you know, cheap ass planes, teach people how to take off, but not how to land fill fill the the planes up with gasoline or explosives and just tell them to go crash into a into a, a battleship or a carrier or into um you know soldiers uh on a hill or whatever um because they didn't have any other way to fight um they were losing too many people they were losing too much materiel and um and they knew it would have a huge psychological impact on American soldiers mm -hmm. because, you know, the American military ideal, you go, you kill the enemy, you come home. Mm -hmm. And Americans were bumfuzzled and I will say frightened to some degree, at least by the idea of fighting an enemy who does not care to survive the encounter. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're always going to hold back a little bit if, well, most people are going to hold back a little bit if you want to actually survive a battle. Um, if you're determined to die, you know, you'll do anything. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems that Americans have with jihadis, you know, and suicide bombers and the 9-11 the bunch. Um, so... Japanese didn't have much else than that kind of psychological warfare at the time. And, you know, the idea was to use these soldiers making these bonsai charges to empty the, you know, make the Americans waste ammunition. Mm -hmm. 
it, well, it, in, some, in some ways it was like the Chinese um, in co the Korean War. Um, did you ever hear or do you remember Jay Leno did these uh, advertisements for Doritos, Cool Ranch Doritos in the 1980s or 90s or something? No, I don't think so. He'd eat these and he'd say, crunch all you want, we'll make more. Well, my, my description of Chinese tactics in the Korean War and of Japanese bonsai tactics are, you know, shoot all you want, we'll make more. Uh -huh. um, except the Chinese obviously had more human resources than Japan did. And, mm -hmm. But, you know, the, yeah, the, so what, where I'm going with this is that it's, it's less a Japanese cultural mindset than an evolving sort of military strategy mm -hmm. that, and, and they had the same kind of faith in the ability, there was a phrase, our spirit against their steel. Mm -hmm. There was a belief that if you, you know, you pushed hard enough and you wanted it worse than they did and you were willing to sacrifice everything, that it didn't matter what kind of material advantages your um, opponent had, your fighting spirit would be enough to overcome. And Mao, you know, Mao Zedong, he was a avowed uh, atheist, had this same kind of mentality, you know, that you could build up your spiritual resources to the to the extent work till you dropped to reach whatever insane targets that he of you know in whatever campaign he had um but to a large degree because that goes against the very basic human desire to survive it became that became a uh, you know a propaganda thing a campaign essentially both within the military and at home one of the phrases they used uh, was Ichioku Gyokusai, which basically means one million smashing the jewels. And this was a, essentially a phrase that meant fight until all, you know, the very last Japanese person is dead. It was like a self-genocide kind of thing. Don't surrender. If the, if the allies invade the Japanese islands, you know, the young, the old women, uh, were all trained with bamboo spears and were told, you know, you must die even if the entire Japanese race is obliterated, mm -hmm. you know. And so, unfortunately, a lot of people think that that is what is, is a fundamental aspect of Japanese culture, when I would argue that it's more of a, an ideology that evolves in a, the most desperate situation. Um, to motivate people to do things that were impossible. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I can see that. And <clears throat> again, like you said earlier, there's a difference between um, excuse and explanation. Um, but in a lot of ways on the battlefield, this led to a great deal more, I think, Japanese casualties because as oh, unfortunately yeah. Marines learned early on that when you can have, you know, a Japanese soldier waving his hand trying to surrender and as soon as guys get on top of him he pulls the pen on a grenade which once you see that once or twice that turns into Marines saying I don't care kill them all just machine gun them down don't even bother because if we even leave one heartbeat left in one of them he's going to find a way to do something set something off and more of our boys aren't going home so let's let's just play it safe and not even mess with it that's exactly right James that's exactly right um you know, John Dower wrote this uh, amazing and very insightful book called War Without Mercy, 
uh, race and power in, in the Pacific War in 1986. And he, he's one of the, real, the people who really develops this idea that racism, racial prejudice was a huge element in, um, well, on both sides. Mm -hmm. But, you know, particularly on the American side, we were a very racist society at that point. We still are. But, you know, not as bad now, I'd like to think. But, um, but it, there's more to it than that. And, and what you're describing is exactly right. It contributes to the Marine mentality of, you know, it's dangerous to try to take these people as prisoners. They will not, you know, they, they know that the military ideology of the Japanese Imperial Army is not to surrender. Don't be taken prisoner you know, get blown to bits or take people with you if you are feigning surrender. So um, it, it, it comes to be, you know, okay, these guys want to die. So we'll, we'll take, you know, we'll send them to hell, which is where they want to go. And I believe very strongly that that um, encouraged the, the, the degree of, and quality of the ferocity that, that went on mm -hmm. there. Um, I think you you hit the nail on the head with that. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, as we, one, one of the things that, and I'm going to segue again, because one of the things I absolutely 100% wanted to ask you about, because when I looked up your profile in NIU, it said one of the projects you were currently working on was the 1935 Japan Football Association World Cup, which I know absolutely nothing about. So do tell. <laughs> Okay. Well, that was something I, I was working on this past spring as a, I was on sabbatical and I went to Japan in February, just as the coronavirus was starting to make inroads there um, to do my research. It started, I, I wrote a book on the history of popular culture in Japan. And in one of the segments about sport, I mentioned this, uh, that, you know, that the first time, a colonial territory was allowed to play in a Japan uh, a soccer tournament, the Emperor's Cup tournament. The Koreans beat them. Well, it came to be a much broader thing than that. I, uh, the soccer rivalry between Japan and uh, their colony, Korea, actually lasted from 1926 to 42. And I collected statistics and did this painstaking work on all the matches I could find records for. And the Japanese, I mean, the Koreans crushed Japan. The win-loss differential is phenomenal. The goal differential across these matches is over 350. I don't have the number right in front of me. Yes. Oh if, you add up, if you add up all the goals scored by Koreans and all the goals scored by Japanese, the difference is 350-something goals. Uh, in a... Um, how much would that be? Uh, Eighteen-year rivalry. Um, so yeah, I, I wrote this article that um, still trying to get published. Uh, it's it's a long article. It should be a short book. It's like twenty thousand words. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> but um, talks about what the implications were of this for uh, Japan-Korea relations at the time. Um, the, the, the Koreans didn't just win that tournament. Later in the year, they won in the Meiji Shrine Games, which was sort of a, you know, empire-wide Olympics, if you will, that happened every year. 
Um, and they won some other championships uh, later. Um, but as a result of those two 1935 victories, um, they said, well, we're going to put some Koreans, we're going to the Olympics in Berlin in 1936, which, as you know, is a huge Olympics, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Not the Olympics, Jesse Owens and mm -hmm. all that. And uh, so we're going to recruit some Koreans for the team. Well, that created a lot of controversy about how many. Uh, and initially, apparently, they said seven. And the Koreans thought, well, hell yeah, we deserve this. They were actually part, formally part of the Japanese Football Association. And they believed they were eligible. See, they the JFA set it up so that whichever teams won in these two tournaments in 1935 were going to be the Olympic team. Well, it's a team from Seoul that wins both of these. And so the Koreans think because of the terms, a Seoul team is going to be the core of the Japan Olympic team. Oh, and that's the only that's you know that's the only option they have. They can't they can't send an independent team to the Olympics, right? Mm -hmm. But they get all excited about this, and of course, Japanese the Japanese Football Association was like, we can't have a Korean team mm -hmm. representing Japan. <laughs> so uh, there were all kinds of controversies about this um, that I document in the in the article. And um, in the end, they just selected two. And one of those decided to bow out mm. because he didn't feel like he was being treated fairly. But when the Japanese team went to the Olympics, and this was the first time Japanese had you know, played outside of the East Asia region, and China actually went too as well. Um, they had a Korean player, Kim Yong-shik, who uh, was a left midfielder. And he actually, the, the Japanese beat Sweden in the first round. They came from behind to win against Sweden. I think the, the score was 3-2. And the go-ahead goal, which was in, I think, the last five minutes of the match or something like that, Kim Yong-shik got the assist. Oh. And the German... Soccer publications uh, were saying he was one of absolute one of the best players on the Japan team. Well, after that, you know, one of the Japanese coaches said, "Well, we would have won, or we would have done better if we had had more Koreans on the team." And so, over the next several years, thirty-eight Koreans wound up playing for the Japanese national team. Really until 1942. And if you were, you may know 1940, the, the Olympics were supposed to be in Tokyo, mm -hmm. but it got canceled after, because of what Japan was doing in China. Um, and, you know, the most that they ever had on the team at any one time were, was five, but, you know, eventually, you know, for the next uh, six years after the Olympics, um, they had 38 Koreans that played on the team. So, you know, the argument that I'm making, and it's, it's very difficult to sort of summarize, but I'll, I'll try to, is that it made um, relations between Japanese and Koreans very complicated, at, at least in this, in this area, because you had Koreans, well, Japanese needed Koreans to be successful in international competition, because Koreans were just better footballers. 
and Koreans wanted to represent Japan felt entitled to do so because of their performance. And um, this was going on at a time when the rhetoric was Naisen Itai, which basically means make Japan and Korea one body. So it's a very sort of um, assimilationist uh, uh, policy. And the, 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 what I argue is the soccer team embodied this the way it was supposed to work. Because when Japanese and Koreans played against each other, obviously, you know, it was, it was very, you know, heated passions and everything. But when they were on the same team, they all got along really, really well. It was like the outside world in which Koreans were systematically disadvantaged and suffered discrimination almost didn't exist. They had friendships. They did all kinds, of, you know, they socialized together outside. They respected each other. Um, and what I sort of what I'm arguing is that Japanese uh, national side sort of embodied what Naisen Itai was supposed to look like mm -hmm. in general, at yeah. least as the way the Koreans saw it. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> Koreans interpreted that they were hopeful. Well, I don't know how hopeful they were. They were probably a lot. Probably most people were cynical about it. The Koreans understood it as a time for you know mutual understanding, greater friendship, um, and more equality. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would argue that the Korean interpretation of Naisen Itai, and some Japanese I'm sure felt this way too, uh, was embodied on that, on those, in the, the national team. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. It, it kind of highlights the difference between um, two governments standing on top of separate mountaintops looking at each other, trying to talk about things and disagreeing and blah, 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 blah. And then if the valley in between is full of the people of that nation state where they eventually meet, they shake hands and be like, yeah, we're just people. We're just, yeah, just doing our sure. thing. And if sure. our people in charge of each other didn't dislike each other so much, this would all be a heck of a lot easier, you know? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Now that's not to say that there was a discrimination in that area too. Obviously Koreans were furious about, being, um, you know, be, their presence on the Olympic team being minimized to that degree. Mm -hmm. um, you also had Kim Yong-shik for a while went to Waseda University in Tokyo and, and played for the Waseda team. Um, but he also played on another in another tournament that was tied and then they did a draw. You know, they would, it was a, like a lottery thing. You would draw an envelope and it would say win or lose. Well, um, one time Kim was on a Korean side and they drew and um, during the lottery, the Japanese player picked the, 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 you know, the letter or whatever, you know, piece of paper and looked, made a funny face like we lost. But then Kim drew one. And it said they lost. And so he believed, and he's always, he always regretted the fact that he didn't say, let's show me your envelope, show me your card, which he didn't do. And he thinks that both of them said lose. And then it was just rigged that the Koreans were, you know, not going to win. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was another incident in 1941 when a Korean team beat a Japanese team in the last minute. And there were a bunch of Korean students in Tokyo who ran onto the field, you know, had a big celebration. And Japanese were so angry about it that 
they made the Korean team, they you know, went to the Korea Football Association, which at that time was just a regional affiliate, and said, give us back the, the trophy. What? And, and, and basically dissolved the KFA. Now, the KFA had no control over how students in Tokyo were going to act, right? Right, yeah. But they basically got, you know, they, their entire executive board resigned. They had to give back the trophy. And, um, and uh, they, you know, and, and then the, the Korean Football Association was dissolved. Well, if you were going to make a textbook definition of sore loser, that's, that's probably about <laughs> it. Like, oh my, give right. us the trophy back and you're right. dissolved, you know? <laughs> right. So, yeah, discrimination continued, but at least on the bounds of, uh, you know, the, the colonial hierarchy itself was just challenged by, you know, undermined by the performance of these Korean teams. Mm -hmm. They just, the statistics are just unbelievable. Yeah. Sounds like that, especially in soccer. Like if you were going to say that was that kind of point differential in like, you know, football or basketball, like, okay. But in soccer where games are typically like one, nothing, three, two, that kind of thing. That's, that's an absolutely insane statistic. Yeah, it was. Did you ever play soccer? Um, I did up until um, I want to say eighth grade only because the school I went to, we didn't have a football team until high school. And then after that, I had to make the switch to getting my head bashed in for four years. So, <laughs> well, I hope that doesn't come back to haunt you. All through high school, I I played um, for both my school and team and uh, my club and a club team in Little Rock. Um, I was a goalkeeper. My little short ass was a goalkeeper. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I and I, you know, I was all state, all city. Uh, but in Arkansas in the 1980s, that, you know, that's not that impressive, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, anyway, it was, it was, this is one of those things. And that's happens to me a lot where I'll do a research topic because I just stumble across a, a passing reference and there's not much written about it. And so then I just go start digging. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're down the rabbit hole and <laughs> you begin to wonder how you even got started. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm going to, um, I, I've taken a bunch of your time, so I'm going to wrap this up. I want to say um, definitely appreciate you getting back to me and agreeing to come on the podcast. And I'll just kind of, you know, give the floor to you if you've got anything you want to say in closing or on the way out. Um, not really. I, I, it's really good to see you again. There's, there's nothing that's more satisfying to a teacher than reconnecting with a student, you know, after that student has, has moved on graduated. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I always appreciate that. And just thanks for having me on. Um, I hope I didn't talk too much. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, I was talking about stuff that's really interesting to me. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it was, um, I, I appreciate all the information you gave. We made it through about a, half the stuff I <laughs> I had on my list. But, you know, I guess when it, it's one of those things where, um, and, you know, I, my, my father, who's also a historian, has his PhD, he's often made this observation that the problem with whenever a historian is telling a story is that they really need you to know that in order to know the story, you need to know the history behind this. 
And to understand that, you need to understand the history behind this. And before you know it, it just keeps going and going and going yeah. and going. And, you know, and, and especially a subject matter like this, and obviously being um, as knowledgeable as you are on it, I, I feel like that if we wanted to, we could, you know, sit here and do a six-hour podcast. And <laughs> and then I would have to give a gold medal out to anybody who made it all the way through to the end. So, <laughs> Well, you know, you're a good interviewer. Yeah, you really are. You ask good questions, but you're also really informed. And I used to teach oral, oral history. And, you know, I, I taught people to interview by doing, you know, doing their homework and then sort of introducing sort of why, you know, the background and why you want to know this and then asking uh, a deeper question. Um, so, yeah, you did a great job. I enjoyed this. I, I appreciate that very much. One of the... Um per your recommendation in your class was Herbert Bix's um, biography on Hirohito, mm -hmm. um, which to this day is still one of my favorite books. I want to say, mm -hmm. or I, over the years, I think I've read that like two or three times. It's, um, wow. Bix is a, re he's a really, really good author. He gets extremely granular at times, but when you're talking about a biography about such an interest, intricate person like that, that's kind of expected, um, you know, down to even his early days, exactly what it is he was studying and what his daily school regimen was, but it's, it's an extremely well-written book, um, which does bring me to, if I can squeeze one more question in here, because this is actually, I, I, I think it's interesting, especially to get your take on it. There was sort of this um, mindset at the end of World War II, and if I'm understanding it correctly, if not, by all means, correct me, that um, there was sort of this push to sort of say, that the emperor didn't wasn't really involved in the day-to-day -day operations of World War II, and so therefore he shouldn't be responsible for everything that happened. And yet Bix kind of makes a little bit of the opposite argument, that he might have been a lot more involved and that that was sort of a way to just shield him and make sure that he remained in office or remain in his position, I should say, after the war. Sort of a, a fall-on-their-own-sword sort of thing to defend the emperor one last time. Right. That was a huge, a huge topic of conversation and controversy. Um, ultimately, the decision was made by MacArthur. And MacArthur said, you know, one of the most ridiculous things that's ever been said is that nobody in Japan knows more about democracy than the emperor. And, you know, I would argue that a lot of the people that were in jail in Japan and, and let out of jail at the end of the war, some of the dissidents, I, I think, knew probably more about it than, than the emperor. I mean, he really did that because there's a lot of reasons. One of them is that, um, do you really want to be the person who ends the longest reigning monarchy family right. dynasty? <laughs> uh, also because, you know, the, the emperor was pliable, compliant. He had the right sort of attitude. He wasn't being defiant. He was being cooperative. Um, I, I think MacArthur was also concerned that given the sort of fanaticism that you were talking about, that his troops on the ground would be endangered mm -hmm. if he overthrew the emperor and, or took the, removed the emperor. Um, and he didn't know how the populace would respond to that. Um, but the decision was made by MacArthur and there were a lot of Japanese who believed that was a, the first betrayal of the occupation. To make you know to make a real functioning democracy I, there's a lot more anecdotes and things i could say about it but the the one thing i i want to just add is in john dower's book war without no not war without mercy um uh embracing defeat which is about the occupation he reprints a letter 
by a naval a naval a soldier i'm sorry sailor in which this guy writes a letter to the emperor i think it was published in a newspaper and he basically writes a check for all of the services the food the pay everything he received while he was in the military and gave it to the emperor and said this i owe you nothing i i did all of this for you i lost my buddies for you and i don't want to be indebted to you for anything wow yeah isn't that heavy wow oh my gosh so well, I used that to illustrate that not all japanese were happy about it. yeah well and i guess if you're um if you're in macarthur's shoes you could probably make the argument for doing what he did you know especially yeah. since you know kind of understanding the difference between east-west culture and maybe also understanding that now that the war was over that the country was about to kind of go through an other sort of like massive time of change and if the emperor could continue to be a constant during that period and even you know kind of like the way the whole Meiji thing started like we said earlier if he can sort of rubber stamp some things it can kind of help ease this into a better peaceful sort of situation and with how much was that complicated by all this was happening essentially the cold war is starting and there's japan sort of sitting right on russia's back door and sort of like we need to shore this up pretty quickly because we kind of need them as an ally in this sort of strategic area geographically on top of it right well they call it the reverse course. And the reason they call it the reverse course is that was actually a phrase used to describe it. In 1947, the emphasis changed from democratizing Japan to creating a, a, a democratic bulwark in, um, and an anti-Soviet ally in the Cold War in the Pacific. And that meant crackdowns on labors or labor and socialists and things that the, the initially the occupation had been very supportive of. So yes, keeping the emperor, even though that decision was made earlier in 1945, it was certainly um, useful, you know, for that, for that reverse course that that decision had been made because that would have possibly alienated. It's, it's really impossible to know how much it would have alienated Japanese people. I do know from the evidence that it would have been a relief to a lot of people. And, and there was a middle path, which was to have him abdicate and his successor take over. And probably that's, if you asked a majority of Japanese at the time, that's probably what they would have wanted. Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, I, I think it's the kind of thing that reasonable people could disagree about. Mm -hmm. um, Reasonable people can disagree, I think, about the atomic bombings, too. And I won't get into that, but there's not a lot of people in my field who agree with that. They just think it was absolutely, you know, evil. Mm -hmm. um, but if you really get into the, the thinking and the mindsets and the, the way that people viewed it at the time and what their options were, you know, it makes a little bit more sense why the decision was made. It doesn't mean I support it. It doesn't mean I wish I'm glad it happened. Um, but it does mean that, you know, you have to view these through the prisms of their own times. Mm -hmm. And I would make that argument for retaining the emperor too. Um, it makes sense given the things that I conditions that I just described to you. Um, 
it also makes sense that a lot of Japanese were very disillusioned and disappointed um, with the occupation right at the get-go because that decision was made. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah, we could we could definitely go on and on and on about it. It's and it, it's such a nuanced and sort of layered discussion. Um, on it, that and you know even just like you were saying with the atomic bomb thing, it's kind of like. I sort of find you try to put yourself in the shoes of the people at the time yeah. and to, you know, Truman at the time and the military commanders, of course, obviously both bombs were absolutely horrific. Um, the bombings, I mean, those two aside, I mean, even like the fire bombings that were happening before that were absolutely horrific. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it was just, you read some of the accounts of that and you're like, I almost don't know what's worse. You know, whether you were, could just be incinerated on contact or watch your entire city burn down around you, knowing that there's no way you're going to get out alive. Um, you know, there, I think you could, and first of all, it's a horrible situation. Like when history sort of finds um, somebody or a group of people having to make a decision like that, where it's, we can either drop these bombs and hundreds of thousands of civilians are going to die or, we invade and we lose potentially hundreds of thousands more of our guys, not to mention how many of their civilians and soldiers are going to die as well. I Absolutely. mean, that's really, really hard to judge someone afterwards when it's such right. a hard decision to make either way. Well, imagine too how Americans would have felt if eventually the word got out that they had spent all this money, they had the technology and they could have used it, but they decided not to. And this invasion happened and it's your son, it's your father, it's your brother that dies in that invasion. And you realize that the invasion didn't have to happen right. because they had this option. So there's, there's that argument. And yeah, I don't think that, you know, the, the one night in Tokyo with the incendiary bombs killed more people immediately, I will say, than either the, bom uh, the atomic bombs did. Mm -hmm. I don't find it to be more defensible than the atomic bombs. I think they are equally disturbing horrific you know um i don't think using a new weapon is any better than using an old weapon that actually killed more people immediately mm -hmm. um you know eventually more people died later because of radiation poisoning and things like that but that, that's irrelevant to the to the moral issue right it doesn't matter you know once you get to a certain number <laughs> I don't know what that number is. You know, it's irrelevant how many people died in terms of determining that something was horrible or morally objectionable or whatever. You know, that's what I think about Nanjing. The number between 100,000 and 300,000 doesn't make it any less or more horrific. Right, you know? yeah. Yeah, we went crazy and raped and killed a hundred thousand people, but at least it wasn't three hundred thousand like exactly. this thing. Like, <laughs> you, come <exactly>. on! <laughs> All right, you mentioned Vix's book. I just want to say, if you're interested, if you liked Vix's book, you might read Donald King's biography of the Meiji Emperor. Okay. Yeah, King. King, uh, K E E N E. Oh, okay. I'm trying to, I think I might have read another one of his books. It's very yeah. You, I'm if you've read any books about Japan, he's likely to have written. One. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will mark that down. It's um, yeah, that that whole area, that whole era, I should say, is just such a fascinating time. I mean, everything from socioeconomics to politics to military to 
I mean, you name it. I One of the stories that gave me humor out of it is when the Meiji Restoration is beginning and the government sends people all across the world to different countries to, you know, figure out who's the best at agriculture, who's the best at industrialization, who's the best yeah. at military, how absolutely unimpressed they were with President Grant. <laughs> Which doesn't shock me one bit. Here's this disheveled, probably smells bad, drunken man who's just, yeah, I'm in power. What do you want? Why are you here? <laughs> You're taking up my time, you know? They did enjoy they did enjoy his presence when he visited Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well my ipad is running out of battery so I all right well, well we will shut down well, once again thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me james it's really good to see you again yeah same to you same to you and I'm, I'm sure we'll hear from you again so okay well take care i enjoyed this you too bye-bye bye all right so that was the podcast i want to thank everybody for tuning in and continuing to listen if you could do me a favor tell a friend have that friend tell a friend continue to keep this thing moving please like and subscribe and if you happen to be listening to this on an apple device there's an area up there in the corner where you can leave a review if you would do that every little bit of that helps thank you so much love you all take care of each other Bye bye